You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Uh, so my name is Meg Tracy. I've been working for the past year for the Great Basin Institute as a GIS specialist um, and placed at the Bishop BLM field office. Uh, I'd like to talk to you today about archaeological modeling and predictive modeling in particular um, and some work that I did in a mountain setting in southeast Idaho. So I used three methods in order to do this, logistic regression, regression tree, and random forest. And that's because the data that I had to work with was either site or not site. There was no way to assign a scaled value to this data. So it, it kind of limits the, the sort of modeling that you're able to do. Um, and then these were validated using cross-validation instead of on-the-ground testing um, and gain statistics. So what I saw from doing this is that there's a really strong correlation between the environment and prehistoric site location. Um, this is definitely the future, especially in CRM. We have huge landscapes to deal with. Um, this one here, this is the Minidoka Ranger District of the Sawtooth National Forest, um, and it is about 880 square miles. So that's a really large landscape to look at um, and try to comprehensively understand the cultural resources of such a large area. Um, in order to do this, you have to make some assumptions about <laughs> what's going on in the world, um, assuming that humans are going to be driven by economic transactions with the environment, and that's borne out in the data as well. You know, there are a lot of temptations to say that, like, maybe it's missing this or missing that, or it's not capturing some sort of more abstract way that we interact with the world, but um, when you're getting 86% of your sites predicted accurately, um, I'd say that we're really capturing the majority of it. Uh, one of the things that I found in particular with this project is that uh, aspect has no relationship whatsoever to site distribution. And this really went against all of the sort of research that I had done in the background, um, starting from Julian Stewart. Almost every single archaeological modeling project has used aspect, um, assuming that especially in high altitude elevations, it's going to be really important to site location. Um, and it turned out that that was just absolutely not true. So I think that there's a lot of value to doing research like this because you can overturn assumptions that maybe people have been working off of for the past few decades. Uh, this data that you see here is non-sites. Those were generated randomly in order to do this comparison work. Um, a lot of the data that I used and tested, um, you're not going to see here at all. But one of the things that I did do was look at viewshed. Um, and this is maybe one of those stand-in variables for those more complicated ways of interacting with the landscape. Um, what you can see from where you're standing has a lot of different, um, different ways that it plays into culture and to human location behavior. Slope <coughs> and aspect are really commonly used parameters. Um, slope played a role in quite a bit of the products that I was using because I'm doing cost distance instead of Euclidean distance for all of these. And um, I'm using aspect in uh, this term that is kind of silly. It's called northness, right? 
because if you look at a compass scale, 1 to 359 degrees, 1 and 359 are very different mathematically, but they are the same on the ground. Um, so what, what I would assume and what a lot of people assume matters in the northern hemisphere and in a high altitude environment is, is how you are facing north or south, and that's what you see here. Uh, but again, that ended up having just no relationship at all to site patterning. I looked at cost distance to obsidian sources. There are a lot of these around the Snake River Plain. It's a geological environment. Springs are also really important in this environment. There are no um, permanent lakes or um, marshy areas, no large bodies of water because it's a karstic landscape, so all the water is underground. Uh, so this is going to be the most reliable source of water in the mountains. And even ephemeral streams are very short-term in this area. So beyond just landscape, um, I think a lot of people will be d dismayed to learn that archaeology in the 21st century involves a lot more math, but that is true. Um, <laughs> I looked at mean elevation, range, standard deviation, um, difference from mean and deviance, deviation from mean. Um, all of this is neighborhood statistics and large raster data sets. Um, these kinds of landform classification actually did end up being relevant to my model. And I did these at multiple different scales too. So you know maybe the smallest sort of area where you would want to locate yourself on the landscape to a larger level at which you would be, you know, this is about the maximum distance that a human can see and make out detail is two kilometers. So this is the complete list of all the variables that I considered in these models. Um, anything with a star was excluded due to multicollinearity, um, tested using variance inflation factor. Uh, which indicates that two, two variables are so close together that they um, are pretty much representing the same thing. So uh, I wanted to kind of weed out some of that before beginning. Um, so first of all, logistic regression model. This is all done using R. Um, uh, an AIC was used to reduce all of the variables. You want to assume that the most you can explain by using the fewest number of variables is going to be your best possible model, because introducing a whole bunch of extra variables into it, even if you explain an extra 1% or 2% of your total site pattern, you're really not benefiting your model in any, in any way. Um, so this is, this is the most parsimonious possible model. Uh, and then I'm looking at the area under receiver operating curve um, in order to assess this. So using this cross-validation technique where a sample of your data is excluded every time you run your model um, and then tested against those results, this is looking at um, mm -hmm. true positives against false positives. Anything above 90 is really Excellent. Um, by the time you get down to 50, that's no better than chance. Um, but even with the stepwise reduced model, um, it's only 
one, two points off. So that's, that's really good for having excluded all of this extraneous, um, all these extraneous variables. So what do you get having gone to all of this effort to do a lot of math, a lot of neighborhood statistics, um, and run all of these massive raster data sets through R? Uh, you can get a predictive map generated through this logistic regression. So um, this is showing us high probability in blue and low probability in yellow. And you can see that that does correlate well to water sources um, and to degree of slope. That, those were my two most important variables. The next two modeling methods that I used were random forest and regression tree. Um, both of these are really pretty functional in, in terms of how well they worked. Um, random forest is a little bit harder to interpret because of its kind of black box nature than a regression tree. Um, regression tree ends up being really easy to just visually interpret. So again, I used cross-validation in order to, um, to check how these models are performing. And it was able to correctly identify about 80% of our sites. So again, you know, you're looking at even when you reduce the world to this kind of really simplistic viewpoint, where only a, ha a small handful of things matter, um, that you actually are capturing a huge number of those sites out there. This shows uh, which of these variables are contributing the most to the random forest. Slope being obviously quite high, um, cost distance to springs, and some of those um, landform pattern parameters. Uh, and again, these are performing really, really well. Regression tree pretty similar to logistic regression, and random forest was actually substantially higher. Uh, this gain index is really commonly reported measure of, of model function in literature. Um, and these numbers are kind of shockingly high, 0.96 and 0.97. Um, that means that they're really excellent classifiers for site presence. So uh, I have a couple minutes if anybody wants to throw questions at me. There's a whole lot of work behind this that I can't even begin to talk about, right? Like um, spatial autocorrelation. I could talk about that for half an hour, but I won't because you guys would cry with boredom. So, okay, well, thank you for having me. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.